Today, I will introduce you to Amber Gemma. She's a fantastic genetics counselor, and I really think that you should take some notes because she shares so much with us during this episode. She is the incoming chair for the Genetics Professional Group for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, and she's also the lead genetics counselor for a large reproductive medicine practice. She does this all of the time, and she has so much knowledge to share. She will share with us not only all of the things that maybe you've heard about with regard to genetic testing for yourself and for your donor, but also things that maybe you've never thought about before and will really want to know. So pull a chair up and listen. I think you'll really love this episode. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I've learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And I'm so excited to bring you today. Amber Gamma is the incoming chair for the genetics division of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. There are professional groups, and each one of those professional groups has a lead, and she is the incoming chair of that particular group. She is also lead genetics counselor for IVI, Reproductive Medicine Associates, and is a wonderful person and has been so helpful in so many people's lives, helping them understand what it means to use a donor and to really think thoroughly, not just about the basic screening, but beyond that and what's important to look for in your donor. So she's going to help us unpack some of these things, which is really one of my favorite topics ever because it's one of the things that we do have some control over. There's so many things we don't have any control over, and this is one of the things that we really do have some control over. So all of you who are listening, who are thinking about your donor or thinking about your donor-conceived children and what goes into that process of putting the genetics together, today you will find out because Amber will help unpack so much for us. So welcome, Amber. Great to see you. Nice to see you again. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really appreciative. Of course. Why don't we start at the beginning? Just tell us a little bit about the different types of genetic counselors and what people should be looking for when they're using donor conception. It's a great question. Genetic counselors work in different settings within reproductive medicine. So you'll have genetic counselors that are working directly at sperm and egg banks, genetic counselors that are working within ART clinics, genetic counselors that work for telegenetics companies. And depending on the clinic that you're working with or your patient journey, you may be interacting with one or multiple of those genetic counselors as you are considering and purchasing a donor. For gamete bank genetic counselors, they are primarily involved in donor screening and then also liaising with customers or patients to answer any questions about screening that has been performed. 
screening that may be available in addition to what's already been done, as well as helping to guide uh, customers and patients towards the selection of the best donor for them. Genetic counselors that work within clinics have a similar role in guiding patients towards selecting a donor that is right for them and have more of direct contact with that patient's care team. So if there are any clinic policies about genetic screening for donors, any policies about what types of vials to purchase, those are really going to be the genetic counselors that are most useful in those situations. With that being said, we know that a lot of ART clinics don't employ genetic counselors in-house at this time. So there may be a lot of clinics that utilize third-party genetic counseling services or telegenetics companies that patients may be asked to speak with as they're selecting a donor who have a pretty similar role to clinic genetic counselors, but they are an independent company and therefore don't have access necessarily to the entire patient chart and don't have as close of a relationship with the care team as an in-house genetic counselor. So what do people do in that situation? They're at a clinic that doesn't have an in-house genetic counselor. How can they best help themselves to get the information they need? I think first ask the care team if there are genetics companies that they work with or telegenetics companies that they refer patients to in those situations. And if that clinic does not have a direct relationship, Google is a great tool to be able to find some of these these providers. So to give a few examples um, of companies that work within this space, Tandem Genetics, GeneScreen, Advocate Genetics, these are all companies that provide telegenetic services for patients that are on their fertility journey on a regular basis and would be able to help patients meet with them as they're navigating the process of selecting a gamete donor and help that patient or that couple come to the decision about which donor is the best fit for them from a genetics perspective. That's fantastic. That's really, really helpful information to have because, again, I think that people don't really even think about that step to be able to to just go past the medical screening and really think about what is the genetic pool that I am selecting they're just thinking about, is this person smart? Is this person attractive? Is this person someone that I want to get to know, which is all very important to people, but it's essential to really make sure that you have the right genetic pool. Um, and that is, you know, without a doubt, the most important thing, right? To have a healthy baby. That's what everybody wants. Yeah, I mean, they think that as uh, patients are navigating that decision, right, that wish that you mentioned to have a healthy baby is definitely top of mind for a lot of people. I always say to patients, every family is going to have something, right? So when you're looking at family histories for donors and trying to be able to navigate what is important for you, what are things that you may feel more comfortable with, um, you know, in terms of a donor's family history, that's going to be an important conversation because it's also going to have to do with your own medical and family history or your partner's medical and family history. So being able to navigate that discussion can be really helpful with a genetic counselor because they can provide some information about you know, is this something that we may be more suspicious of a single gene condition? Is this something that we think is more run-of-the-mill things that we see within families and how family histories may combine together in the donor-conceived offspring, as well as, you know, being able to answer questions that a patient or a couple may have? And this is my favorite topic to talk about, but I'm going to put it on the shelf just for one second because I want to first help everyone understand 
what happens first. So what generally happens first is you kind of look at the recessive carrier screening first, right? Can you explain to people what that means? Yeah. So I think really even the process begins before that, because very often when someone is presenting to be considered as a gamete donor, the first thing they're going to do is answer a lot of questions about their medical history and their family history. And for gamete banks that employ genetic counselors, the first look that a genetic counselor at that bank is going to have is at that information and then to do a consultation with that prospective gamete donor flesh out some of that information, go through it in more detail. And really, they are assessing that family history for any significant evidence of genetic conditions. So when we think about genetic conditions, there can be different ways that conditions can be passed down through a family. So when we talk about dominant genetic conditions, these are things that people carry and have a 50% chance of passing on to a child. But these are not necessarily things that are actively tested through the gamete donor screening process. So the role of the family history is to be able to try and ascertain what are we seeing within the family history? Do we see any significant evidence of a dominant genetic condition? And examples of this may be something like hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, BRCA1, BRCA2, Huntington's disease, you know, different things where people can show signs and symptoms if they actually carry a DNA change. If that family history is reviewed and the GAMI bank feels like that family history meets ASRM guidance and is something that is acceptable for their organization, they then move on to doing genetic testing for that prospective donor. So this may include something like a chromosome analysis. It may include some blood testing, looking to see if someone is a carrier for conditions such as sickle cell anemia. And then these days, what is very common is that a DNA sample is collected and expanded carrier screening is done. What is expanded carrier screening? Well, it is testing that looks for a large number of recessive genetic conditions, So sometimes you'll come across some banks that are using labs that look for just under 200. Sometimes some banks are looking at over 500 different genetic conditions. And the reason that this testing is done is because typically people who are carriers of recessive conditions are healthy and they don't show any signs or symptoms. So this is not something that we can necessarily get at by looking at family history. And it's more something that we have to do direct testing. And then as you alluded to, Lisa, that information on the carrier screening can then be assessed with the recipient or the recipient's partner and see if there are any matches, see if anyone are carriers for the same genetic condition. And those match situations are going to be cases where there would be a 25% chance to have an affected child. And so for many people who find themselves looking at a donor where there is that match situation, I think many people would consider using an alternative donor really to be able to reduce the risk for that genetic condition. That's really helpful. So in other words, for people who are thinking about using a donor, and let's say your clinic does not have an in-house genetic counselor, you can use one of these services because there's so many things in both of these groups, the dominant and recessive groups, where you wouldn't necessarily know that that donor may have something that they could pass on to your future child, right? If let's say you find a a sperm donor on Facebook or you want to use a friend from college, 
That person may be very healthy, right? And people don't realize that person could be very healthy. Maybe everybody in their family looks healthy to them. And you meet this young person who seems fine and you think everything's going to be beautiful, no problem. But here you are with all of these issues that could be potentially kind of sitting in their DNA that could be passed on to your children and you wouldn't know. You know, that is where having the level of information that can come from de-identified donors and from using a donor through a bank can definitely allow patients and couples to make the most informed decision possible, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think you bring up a good point that sometimes in these cases where donors are being recruited through Facebook or, you know, through other methods like that, there can be a missing piece in terms of the family history information, the medical history information. There's no way really to be able to make sure that you are being given the most complete picture to be able to make the most informed decision. Right. Because someone might be, you know, let's say a carrier, even for like a cystic fibrosis, and you wouldn't know because maybe nobody in their family has it. Nobody in their family has had it that you know. And maybe this guy from college seems like a really nice guy and he's become your best friend and you really want to use him for your donor. And yet here you are in a situation where just a little extra effort in getting some screening could give you this really valuable information. Yeah, I think even in situations where patients are thinking about using known donors, there can be a benefit to you know, going through the screening process with that patient's clinic, being able to get that information just so that we can make sure that, you know, again, we have the complete picture. And really, this is to try and prevent surprises that may come up later down the line. Really being able to get information about what the potential health of a child may be. What types of information do you need to be passing on to your donor conceived child to equip them in their future life, in their adult life? Is there anything additional that they need to be thinking about in terms of cancer screening? Do they need to be thinking about potentially genetic testing at some point in the future? So this is all information you know, that can be very useful for donor-conceived individuals, and that I think we are seeing a, a desire for this type of information amongst the donor-conceived community. Yeah, it's so important. And sometimes you have this screening kind of in front of you, right? Some sperm banks do a relatively good job. We'll talk in a moment about extending the genetic counselor's role in your life, but they do a a good job in kind of giving you a picture. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you won't get it as, you know, if you're maybe with a smaller sperm bank or you're, you're with an egg bank and you're working with a clinic that's not really following guidelines, then you may not know what you don't know. You may not know that you're missing all of these things And it's so helpful to hear that it's really important to make sure that you have someone who's qualified, who's going to be able to look at this picture and say, well, wait a minute, there are a certain amount of tests here that should be performed that are not performed. There are things that we should be looking at that we don't see here. It's really important to get that information from your genetics counselor, right? Yeah. And I think it's important as well as you're navigating the gamete donor journey that you're going to be coming across donors that have different levels of genetic screening. And so I think that there can sometimes be some questions that come up about, should I be selecting a donor that has been screened for over 500 genetic conditions? What about this donor that I really like that has only been tested for a couple genetic conditions? And that's a very personalized question because it is going to depend somewhat on the testing that has been done for the patient or their partner, what those results were. 
there may be some situations in which, from a genetic risk perspective, selecting a donor that has been screened for a fewer number of conditions is still, you know, not a risky choice. But there may be some situations in which we know that a patient is a carrier of a genetic condition that the donor has not been screened for. And then the conversation is really going to revolve around, these are the risks based on the fact that the donor is unscreened. Is this a risk that you feel comfortable with proceeding? Is it something where you want to try and request additional testing for the donor? As sometimes that can be a possibility. Or is it something that you want to think about selecting a different donor? So there's a few different avenues that you can take. And it's not always necessarily the case that the best donor from a genetics perspective is going to be the donor that has been screened for the largest number of genetic conditions. There's so many factors that go into the process um, and patient-specific or partner-specific results that can guide that decision as well. So it's also important, I think, what you're also pointing out is that there are ways for patients to say, you know, I'm attached to this donor. Is it possible to still use them? Or is it possible to request additional screening because I really yeah. like this person, I'd really like to use them, but I'm a little bit nervous. I don't want my child to be a carrier for something. Or or maybe even beyond that, I have something in my family that I'm worried about. Maybe I can go back to the egg bank, let's say, or to the um, agency and say, can I have my donor do this extra screening? And very often they, they'll be able to do it. Yeah, it's definitely something where they will try and contact the donor and see if the donor would be willing to do the testing. I think, generally speaking, gamete banks limit that additional testing to recessive conditions unless there is some medical reason to do testing for things like hereditary cancer predispositions or cardiac conditions, these dominant conditions that, again, they're trying to screen through the family history. So I wouldn't say that People who are looking at a gamete donor can contact a bank and request any type of genetic testing. But certainly if a donor is unscreened for a recessive genetic condition that a recipient or recipient's partner has not been screened for, that's always something where we encourage contacting the gamete bank and seeing if additional testing is possible and if the donor would be amenable to it. So in those circumstances, because the gametes are frozen already, sometimes it's a little bit more challenging. But certainly, if you know the donor or if the donor's at an agency where you can talk to the counselor or someone there yeah. and talk to them about it, you have a greater chance and people should, I think, feel free to do that. They should try to request that because very often it's even you know, more easy to do if you have somebody who's kind of in the process, hasn't been cycled yet, and they they may be available for more screening. So now that we, we're kind of looking at that first step, you meet with the patient, you go over this screening with them, and very often patients find, I, I find as well, that there's something that happens in this process where they kind of get attached to this donor. They say, well, you know, I really like this person or that person. How do you as a genetics counselor say to them, well, you know, this person might be lovely, but it's not really about her. You know, I, we were just uh, speaking recently about how it's not the donor's fault if there are issues in his or her family that become problematic. You can love this person and think that the world of them. But if there are these issues in their family, it may be unwise to go with that donor. 
Yeah. And I think that's, that can become a difficult conversation, right? Cause like you mentioned, there's, there's many different factors that can go into decisions about gamete donors. And there may be cases in which patients or couples want to use a gamete donor that physically resembles their partner or, you know, has a similar background to their partner. There may be, you know, especially for same sex couples, there's, there's that loss of being able to conceive at home, right? And and the medicalization of the process of having to select a donor, which can almost create what I call this choice paralysis situation where you feel like there's just so much to look at and it's very overwhelming. The way that I always approach it is we have to balance all of these things out, right? So when we think about genetic history and family history, that's going to be a piece of the puzzle that as you mentioned, we have a little bit more control over. So we can we have that snapshot of information that that can guide us in terms of lowering risk for donor-conceived children. We also have all of the other things like appearance, educational background, personality, you know, questions that can come up as well. And so if if there is a patient that is really strongly attached to those non-medical characteristics, and the medical characteristics just are saying that there is a very high risk. I think it's really ha- diving deeper into what that means for the patient, right? What are their goals through this process? Are they comfortable with some level of risk? And at what point does that risk become too high for them? If we're looking at a 25% chance to have a child with a lifelong medical condition, what would that look like for the family, right? In terms of emotional burden, stress on the family, cost of treatment. At the end of the day, certain clinics may have policies that a patient has to select a donor that is not a carrier Mm -hmm. for the same conditions as them. And so I think that in the situations where there is an increased 25% chance there may be roadblocks that are put up through that process and being able to use that donor from those policies. So I usually always have a discussion with patients about that as well, about kind of what our clinic's policies are. When it comes to family history, everything is going to be risk factor based. So having these things within the family history is going to increase the risk. It's not going to guarantee that something would come up in a child. So that discussion is a little bit more in that gray area and being able to figure out what history are you comfortable with? What risk factors are you comfortable with? At what point does it cross the line into something that you are no longer comfortable with? So it can become a pretty complex conversation depending on, you know, the perception of sometimes a patient's own family history, what their experience has been like with their relatives and being able to navigate their goals as they are selecting a donor and and thinking about health of their future child. Okay. So you just said something also that was, I think is really important. So I just want to stop because there's something I want to talk about beyond this, but I wanted to stop for a second and just discuss something that you said, which is something that I find really confusing, I think, for a lot of people because people Mm -hmm. get attached very often to the donor. And that's great because you want to like your donor for a number of reasons. And very often, if let's say there's a racial choice, you want to choose somebody of that race, if your partner's of a certain race, or if you're interested in a certain culture or religion or whatever, all of those things are things that you can choose. However, choosing if your donor is going to have, or your future child is going to have your donor's personality 
or have your donor's IQ or have your donor's freckles or blue eyes is not something that you're guaranteed, right? It's not like you're taking this donor, which very many people think they're taking this donor, they're going to get a clone of that donor in their child, right? And it doesn't work that way. You have all of the donor's genes and their whole family line and your whole family line all combined. So we don't know. And I think that's a really difficult concept for patients to absorb. Yeah. And I think it can be challenging as well because most things that you see in family histories are based off of genetic risk factors and environmental contributions, right? So this is where it can get tricky in having those conversations is because if we have someone in the family that has been diagnosed with lung cancer, but they also had a history of smoking for decades, that is going to be a health history that we are not too concerned about from a genetics perspective, right? But if we have multiple people across multiple generations that have died under the age of 50 from a heart attack, that's indicating that there's some strong genetic risk factors for heart disease within that family, coronary artery disease. So that's more going to be a health history that may stand out in terms of genetic risk factors. So you're right. There are definitely some things that we have control over and things that we don't have control over. And I think meeting with a genetic counselor to be able to even parse that out in the family history of the donor can be helpful in making the decision. Yes, yes. So we're talking about is the recessive and dominant carrier screening, but now we're adding something to this picture that patients don't always think about, and understandably, right? You don't know what you don't know, but this idea that there is more to the genetic history that we don't really think about and kind of digging into that family tree and all of the issues there, as Amber's saying, are really important for a genetic counselor to look at because as she's saying, we can see if there is the potential for higher risk for issues, right? Mm-hmm. And then the next step I think after that is also when you're thinking about, and this is something that that you can do with somebody like Amber, is think about, okay, look at all those risk factors, and what does that look like when I match them up with my family's risk factors, which people don't always look at, right? Yeah. It's a complicated process. It's very complicated, (laughs) but it's so important, right? Because if I have lots of colon cancer in my family and my donor has colon cancer in their family, maybe it would be better if my donor's grandfather died of heart disease instead, right? It may not be wise for me to choose this particular donor, even though I love this person. Yeah. Again, when we kind of come back to choice of donors, right? I think very often patients have like their top three that they are looking at. I think also not getting hopes up too much as you're navigating through this process, which granted can be very difficult to do, but kind of keeping an idea about like, these are my top three donors, going into a genetic counseling session or going into the selection process can really allow people to have that separation process to be able to not get so emotionally tied up, I would say, and really be able to wait to let those emotions play into the decision until you have all of the factual information as well. And I think at that point, if we can harmonize the factual information that a patient or couple feels comfortable with along with that emotional attachment, that's really going to be the sweet spot that we're looking for. So you would say that it would be best for a potential recipient to choose their top three donors and then not try not to get attached to any of them until they 
speak with you and go through all of these steps? Yeah, I mean, at least, you know, when counseling patients, the hardest situation is when someone does come in with just one donor that they are very attached to. And then if something does come up from a genetics perspective, the process of fertility treatment is already such an emotional roller coaster. Introducing that, you know, additional high and low through the process can be hard for some people. So I think being able to keep in mind that there's going to be more than just what is being seen on the donor profile that is going to contribute to this decision. Some information on this decision you may not get until you meet with a genetic counselor. If, you know, I were approaching this process personally, I would consider kind of keeping some emotional distance until I have the complete picture and and being able to think about keeping a few donors that are top choices, gather all of the information on those, and then sit down with all of that information. Let the information and the emotions guide your decision. I think that's so fantastic. Really fantastic, Amber. I think it's really a great way to think about this process. And with that in mind, what about people who have a known donor I'm assuming you would say also, you know, let's just kind of keep our feet on the floor and not get too attached to the idea of using this person until we have all the information. Yeah, I think it can be a little bit harder to do in those situations because you're presenting at the beginning of that process already with some emotional relationship to that individual and discussions that have already happened around that prospect, hopefully. So I appreciate that that can be a much more difficult distance to try and keep in those situations. But as much as possible, we just have to keep in mind that if there is going to be a screening process that is going to be done, we're really not going to be able to get a holistic view of the match until we have all of that information back. And there may be some disappointment there, right? When you when you let somebody know that maybe this person who they really liked is maybe not the best choice for them. But ultimately, it's so important as much as we want to find this person that we can feel completely in love with, again, we're really not choosing them. We're choosing their genetics, right? Because we're not going to get that person as our child. We're getting their family tree, right, inside of our their child. And so I think it's important for people to kind of try, even though it's difficult to make that distinction and remember this is not the person that I'm getting. Yes, I want maybe their benefits because I want to reach out to that person later. I want to be able to speak well of my donor, so I want to like them. And all those things are great, but we're not getting a clone of them. We're getting yeah. their, you know, their father's, you know, bushy eyebrows and their mother's crooked nose and, you know, all sorts of things, right? Yeah. And so we really need to be thoughtful about even though we really like this person. Having a genetics counselor help us navigate this process is so helpful. Yeah. And I think if you are a patient that is starting this process and you're considering, you know, do we go the de-identified route? Do we go the known donor route? I think a good question to ask is, is your risk tolerance in terms of genetic and family history any different in those two situations? And if it is different, what is playing into those differences, right? If you have a known donor that you're interested in and you feel like you would be a little bit bit more tolerant to family history, what is playing into that decision? And is that something that you think you would still feel comfortable with 20, 30 years down the line 
you know, if something did come up within a child's health history and that answer is going to look different for every single individual, right? So I think that's also something important to ask as you're starting this journey and considering which route you go down and what the pros and cons may be. Yeah, that's a really good point because there are more subtle things, right? We're always kind of talking about cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease and those sorts of things. But there's so many subtle issues that somebody might see where a genetic counselor can point out, oh, it looks like there's many, many relatives that have learning disabilities. And maybe that's okay for some people because that's something that might be able to be remediated or Maybe somebody says, well, there's a lot of learning differences in my family. That's okay with me, yeah. right? So it can. there yeah. are a lot of other subtle issues to look at. Exactly, yeah. Well, that's so helpful. And I think it's important for people to remember that, of course, we all are a work in progress. We don't know what we're going to have, even when the baby's born and how these issues will develop or not develop over time. So all we can really do is get as much information as we can and make the best choice we can to have the healthiest child we can, because ultimately, right, that serves everyone, I would say. And having a genetic counselor in your corner is invaluable in going through this process, I think. Yeah. I mean, we enjoy speaking to patients in this situation, and we are really here with the goal of helping that patient or that couple achieve their goals. You know, again, I've said before, it can be a difficult journey. And so it's always so rewarding to be able to get to the other side of that journey with someone and and see them build their family um, in the way that they wanted to. It's so great, Amber, that you're doing this because I can see how passionate you are about what you're doing and how good you are at this and how much you think about all of these pieces which people just wouldn't know about. There's no way to know. And there's no way for people to know what level of risk there is either, right? Is there you know, 50% chance or 90% chance? And so having someone like you in their corner is so valuable. So I really appreciate everything you're sharing with us today. And I really appreciate, of course, having you on my podcast. It's great. I think this is really, really important information for everyone. I started this episode out saying this is one of my favorite topics. And it is, of course, because I really feel strongly about trying to assert control where it's possible and put less effort into the things that are not possible to control. So this is one of those things that's, you know, on, you know, on my top five list. So thank you so much for helping educate all of us. And is there anything else that we've missed or that you'd like people to know? I think that there can be a misconception that by going through this process, it eliminates risk entirely. And that is definitely not the case. While we try to do as much as possible to reduce the chance for a child to be diagnosed with a genetic condition, you know, based on the family's wishes, or, you know, try to get information for the recipient to be able to understand the future health of a child, there's still a lot that we can't predict. So sometimes there may be new genetic conditions that come up for the first time in someone. Sometimes there are recessive conditions that are not being tested for through the screening process because they are very, very rare. Mm. Especially for families that already have donor-conceived children, there may be the possibility that there is additional information that becomes available, either because additional testing has been done for the donor or because a child that was born using that donor's gametes 
has been diagnosed with something. Hmm. So for people, you know, that are working with gamete banks or working with gamete programs, it's going to be very, very important to make sure that your contact information is up to date with those programs. Because when these types of things happen, the gamete program or the gamete bank, the first thing that they're going to be asking, is this something that could introduce risk to other children? Hmm. Do we need to do any additional genetic testing in this situation to be able to answer that question? And if there is ever anything that comes up that the gamete program or the gamete bank feels like could affect the health of a child that has already been born from that donor's gametes or a future child, that's going to be information that they are trying to contact patients and contact clinics about. Seeing a genetic counselor through that process can also be helpful. And very often, if you are working with a gamete bank, the the correspondence that you get actually has genetic counselor information already on there, like your first point of contact. But very often, there can be questions that come up, you know, later on down the road. And genetic counselors can really be helpful in navigating that process as well and being able to understand what is the level of new risk here? Is there any additional testing that we should think about doing, et cetera? So it's important to keep in mind that this genetic risk assessment is something that is definitely done before the purchase of gamete donors or working with a gamete donor. But because time goes on, there can be new information that comes up as well. So just important to keep in mind that you may be hearing more in the future um, and that there are going to be people around to help you navigate that process and that information as well. That's really important to know because I do see people who both don't continue to consider how things can change over time. But also, even when you have the PGT-tested embryos, there's still some risk. People think there's no risk anymore, but there is still some risk because we can't test for everything in the world. And as you said, there are things that come up all the time. So it's really just about doing the best that you can with the information we have now. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I hope everyone's taking notes about what Amber's saying because this is really, really helpful to know. And obviously, now we know to remember for the future for our children. And I really appreciate you being here, Amber, and sharing all of this. This is really great for people to know about. How can people reach out to you? Do you have any information or a social media account that you can share with us? Yeah, so um, I am active on LinkedIn, Amber Gamma. And if you are looking to find a genetic counselor in your area that may be able to meet with you and discuss this information, there is a great website called findageneticcounselor.org. Oh. This is a website where you can search based on if a genetic counselor does in-person appointments or telehealth appointments, area of practice. So for example, ARTIVF is one option and be able to find someone that is local or someone that may provide telegenetic services. In addition, the genetic counseling professional group that I'm the incoming chair for, we do have a telehealth directory on our website, Great. ASRM genetic counseling professional group. You'll be able to access our website, find our telehealth directory, and be able to find genetic counselors that specialize in this area, again, based on your state of residence. That's fantastic. And I, I think that's wonderful that you have all these resources. And for everyone out there, if you have any questions, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine is the place to go. 
much better than Dr. Google. You will get there the right information. You won't get misinformation. You will have the right practitioners. You will have the right science behind you to make these really tough decisions. And with people guiding you like Amber and being able to have the right information, you will feel so much better about your choices. You'll feel safe knowing that you're doing everything you can. And I think that's what most people want ultimately. So Thanks again, Amber, for coming on today. And for everyone out there, I know this was a lot of information today. If you want to reach out to Amber, you can reach out to her, as she said, on LinkedIn. And certainly you can reach out to me anytime. I'm always happy to help. Thank you so much for having me on. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you.